Hi, this is Brandon, and welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention. And this is part two of an episode called Becoming Affirming, where I'm discussing a paper that I wrote about issue of going from an unaffirming to an affirming position on LGBTQ issues. The first episode you can find on our podcast, and this one will continue that theme. I've already touched several times on the idea of doctrine and teaching and biblical understanding. And since this document intends to be grounded in careful scriptural interpretation, I should explain my general hermeneutics, that is, my personal guiding principles of scripture reading and interpretation. And I think this is important because a lot of the times we know what we believe. We don't really know why we believe it. And this whole process for me was a journey of becoming aware of what I believed and, more importantly, why it was something in my past that I believed and why that needed to change. So let's let's dig into my hermeneutics for a moment and let me explain how I've chosen to believe. First of all, I believe that the Bible is infallible. That is, that the overall Bible is completely true in its presentation of God's nature and his requirements on mankind. However, it allows that specific aspects of the scriptures may require careful thought and may only have limited cultural applicability or may have scientific inaccuracies that today we understand better. Uh, Second point, thus I don't believe that everything in the Bible is exactly literal. For example, that a 24-hour day is a necessary interpretation of Genesis, or that the earth has four literal corners, or that the sun literally traverses the heavens in a chariot. I also don't believe that every command in the Bible, especially many in the Old Testament, applies literally to the body of Christ today. As an obvious example, we no longer advocate slaughtering children who disobey their parents. We also typically don't cut off our own hands or gouge out our own eyes when we sin, despite what Jesus said. I believe that any and every English interpretation of the Bible is fundamentally imprecise due to the difficulties of translation, especially when translating between languages from vastly different cultures with sharply different thought processes. Many biblical literists assert that only the original copies of the scriptures are truly trustworthy and inerrant, but no such copies exist. I believe that there is a very large amount of trustworthy evidence testified to by many Bible historians that there are zero known original copies in the original languages. Regarding the Old Testament books, well, except for a few books, they were generally only oral histories for many generations before they were recorded on paper or papyrus long after the apparent date of the works. As such, there were never any original, quote, books in the Old Testament that were, quote, written by any of these purported authors. Even the Torah is widely understood to have been recorded in written form nearly a thousand years after its origins, most likely during the Babylonian captivity. Furthermore, uh, even for the few books believed to have been specifically written originally, the oldest known copies are still many hundreds of years younger than their origins. Now for the New Testament books, the oldest known copies are still a few hundred years younger than the time of their writing. Thus, there are many generations removed from the originals, and it's impossible to ever review the original manuscripts. So, I believe that even the best copies of the original documents are copies of copies of copies, many generations from the original, and they're subject to both copyists and oral retelling errors, and even sometimes translations of copies before we receive them. 
But I still believe that our omnipotent God is fully capable of accurately communicating his word to each generation and language and culture, despite any such precision or copy errors or translation weaknesses. So I do believe that the Bible can accurately present God's character to any reader of any era, and in fact that the Holy Spirit reveals these essential truths to his people. I also believe that the Bible and its individual teachings can only be properly understood in the context in which it was written and in which it was heard by the first audiences. The meanings cannot be separated from the plain understandings of the original speakers and listeners. Not just our plain understanding, but their plain understanding. But I do believe that man is fallible, and despite God's ability to perfectly record what he wanted recorded via man's agency, man will fallibly interpret God's word, other than via flashes of inspiration by the Holy Spirit. So a plain reading isn't often plain or correct. And as such, I also believe that deeper understandings are intended and revealed over time by God in his grace to humanity, so that he does not require us to live as those first audiences lived, or necessarily to even believe as they believed. For example, this is why God corrected Peter's understanding of acceptable foods and the church's relationship to Gentiles. I believe that God's primary requirements on mankind are surrendered obedience to him and love for him and selfless love for fellow man. I believe that God has great compassion on the poor, the disadvantaged, the weak, the oppressed, and the marginalized, and that he places great emphasis on his people's treatment of such people, and that he considers his own people to be the primary vehicle by which those needy are served. This matters to him so much that the issue of how the marginalized are treated appears to be the single most prevalent issue that spans all of Scripture, and it carries with it both the strongest warnings and imprecations and the strongest blessings. I therefore believe that God's nature should be understood by those imperatives, and the proper interpretation of his laws and his commands must be made in light of those imperatives. And finally, I believe that God's primary purpose in creation was to reveal himself to the principalities and powers, particularly in his relationship with mankind in all its limitations as it was intended to fully represent the Father as the corporate Christ is assembled out of every tribe and tongue and nation and people. So with this hermeneutic in mind, after carefully reading the books and the other material I mentioned before, I have concluded that the conservative position on excluding practicing active homosexual and transgender believers from full participation in ministry and Christian life is incorrect, and it's bearing substantial harmful fruit, and it should be changed. And I'm not alone in this assertion, because many churches are beginning to recognize this truth. But I don't take this position because it's popular, because it's supported by anyone else. I take this position because I personally now am fully convicted of its truth. It would certainly be simpler for me to hold these matters to my heart and to basically take no visible action. But that would be like the closeted gay or transgender individual staying silent for the sake of peace, with those around them. But as my empathetic eyes have been opened over the last few years, I have become aware that significant, actual, tangible harm is being done routinely to LGBTQ people who, as humans, indisputably bear God's image. And furthermore, the political scene among self-identified evangelical conservative Christians has been rapidly changing towards a a form of Christian nationalism that favors 
legal suppression of the rights of these people, even going so far as to call for their execution. There's a case in Texas where a pastor said that gay people should be sentenced to death, um, pastor also in Idaho. Many states are actively passing laws that are restricting rights and available medical treatment for LGBTQ individuals. And there are now numerous Christians and right-wing groups actively attacking LGBTQ people, both electronically, online, social media, and so forth, and physically. In September 2022, the Cloudflare Web Load Balancing Service took the nearly unprecedented step of cutting off services to a right-wing website that was hosting forums that were actively threatening a transgender activist and had been directly implicated in three queer suicides in recent years. Furthermore, as a committed Christ follower, I cannot agree with categorically excluding a sizable fraction of the population from Christian ministry and discipleship. Even if I were to agree that gay activity is unacceptable to God, which I don't, but even if I did, we are meant to be changed by our relationship with Christ, not before we begin that relationship. So the church's exclusion of a group excludes them from any opportunity to develop and deepen a relationship with Christ, which is exactly where the Lord will have the opportunity to adjust their thinking and behavior, if, and that's an if, if he deems it necessary. I am also unwilling to take the position that the church can welcome LGBTQ people into its midst, but also insist that they must immediately change their behavior and identity to remain in fellowship. That's not acceptance and welcome. That is unlovingly saying, you can be here, but you cannot be you. Now, it's often asserted by non-affirming Christians that agreeing with the LGBTQ agenda is, quote, taking the easy way out for the progressive Christian. I fundamentally disagree. It should be obvious that anyone who grew up in conservative, traditional, non-affirming Christian spaces will recognize that taking an affirming position is one of the hardest things you can do, whether as an LGBTQ person or just in support of them. And in my case, I gain no personal benefit from taking this position. In fact, it should be obvious that quite to the contrary, I stand to lose significantly by taking this position. It doesn't salve my conscience for some personal gay inclination, and I don't have any. It doesn't give me license to personally sin sexually. It doesn't give me license to overlook sin in someone in my life. Instead, I've moved to this action of coming out as an ally, directly out of compassion and love for my fellow man and in direct opposition to how they're being treated by society and by the institutional church in America, not to mention all around the world. The problem for me was pretty straightforward. I already had a pretty solid idea of where my heart and spirit have landed on this issue, but my mind was really unhappy about it. My pastor used to say that there were times when his brain was deeply offended at something that was nonetheless blatantly apparent to his spirit, and so his responsibility was to surrender his mind to his spirit sensed calling from the Holy Spirit, and to trust his brain to catch up later. In this matter, the answer, unfortunately, is much the same for me. So many things I've internalized over nearly 50 years in the church are clashing deeply with what I sense that the Holy Spirit is saying to me. So the question is, why not simply change my internal position and otherwise remain silent to avoid causing offense to anybody, knowing how much trouble this topic always causes in Christian circles? At least that does have a simple answer. I have both friends and family, most of them are professing Christians, who are directly dealing with this topic. They're either affirming or personally involved directly with LGBTQ people 
or their LGBTQ themselves. If I'm going to be a faithful friend and a brother in Christ, and if I hope to have anything to speak into their lives, I cannot ignore the elephant in the room, so to speak. So this uncomfortable conflict not only directly affected me, but was directly within me. It was me against myself. It wasn't a conflict with someone else, and I couldn't step back from the conflict by hanging up the phone or turning off social media or backing out of some meeting. Now, with that said, I could have easily chosen to shut down this internal conflict instantly if I wanted to do so. All it would have taken, as I noted above, is to quote some convenient Bible verse to myself and pretend that that makes the whole topic go away. I could have easily appealed to those things I've been taught what those verses mean. And not long ago for me, that would have meant that I was being faithful to the things that I've been taught to believe by older and wiser believers. In fact, given that faith was defined so often for me as believing without any confirmation, it would have been considered the height of faithfulness not to put a second thought into my inner conflict. And choosing to stand on those principles would have been the very evidence of faithfulness. After all, it says in Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But now it would also mean directly rejecting the call that God has put on my heart to, quote, study to show myself approved and, parenthetically, to deny the compassion and acceptance uh, to which he is now unequivocally and clearly calling me. So the essence of studying, after all, is to question. Webster defines study as application of the mental faculties to the acquisition of knowledge, careful or extended consideration, or a careful examination or analysis of a phenomenon, development, or question. And there's that word, question. Nothing can be acquired or considered or examined without first acknowledging a lack of understanding. It means one must have a question to answer, some topic that hasn't been yet fully grasped. So questioning is inherent in study. And studying is not to believe without doubt. More than that, studying is certainly not to search the scriptures for verses to back up my existing conclusions. Instead, it's to explicitly, intentionally doubt my own conclusions and knowledge and not only use my brain, but also my spirit to inquire with the Lord and his scriptures and every bit of information about the scriptures that may be relevant to the topic. As any scientist knows, the heart of the scientific method is to form a hypothesis, then to work diligently to determine if it's correct. The key being to go into that investigation with an open mind and look at the question or hypothesis as if it's not already solved. It's hard work, and if it's going to be honest, it cannot start with preordained conclusions. And here's the interesting thing about Abraham believed God. We often quote that story as showing that faith is exemplified by blind obedience. But it's worth noting that Abraham was asked by God to do something that deeply offended his mind, to surrender his logical understanding of God's direct and clear promise that through this son of his would come countless offspring, and instead to sacrifice that son. And even before that, he was asked to not believe that his almost 100-year-old body was too old to sire a son, but to grow strong in faith by believing in the unbelievable. So in some sense, he was commended for being willing to have his mind offended by his spirit's conclusions. And similarly with Peter, who was asked by the Lord to do something that deeply offended his mind too, which was to surrender his logical understanding of God's commands about the Gentiles, but to invite them into full fellowship and membership in God's kingdom. So in this matter, I find that faith is actually taking the hard way out. It's grappling with the matter that seems impossible to understand or to solve, and trusting God when there's little or no evidence that it's going to work. 
And so Hebrews 11, 1 through 2 says, Now faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. For by it the people of old gained approval. Now whenever I raise this LGBTQ topic with conservative Christians lately, I hear essentially the same objection. The affirming position is a cheap accommodation to sin, taking the easy way out, or avoiding conflict with the gay and queer community. Supposedly, it's avoiding calling them to account for their supposed sin of wanting peace more than righteousness. And that's not directed just at me for considering an affirming position. It also says the same about the gay or queer person themselves, that they just want an easy way to justify their sin. Well, my first observation is this. Justifying sin might possibly be true for some Christian gays or queers, but what about the non-Christians who have no moral reason to avoid being gay or queer? If the whole issue is them avoiding believing that they're sinning, how can that apply to someone with no inherent sense that it's sinful in the first place? And it's very obvious that unbelieving gays and queers struggle with this question too, despite a lack of moral framework in which to anchor the decision. In fact, you'll hear, if you listen, story after story of them wrestling with this issue, even as young children, long before any Christian moral sense entered the equation and many years before anyone uttered a word about sexuality or gender or the birds and the bees to them. They just knew they were deeply different, but they couldn't resolve the issue just by conforming to what they saw around them. My second observation is this. I've discovered that not a single gay or queer person whose testimony I heard found this to be a simple issue. Rarely were they making this decision based on how someone else believed that they should be acting. Rather than making a choice of aligning or not aligning with what Christians said about them, it was usually whether they'd come into alignment with who they knew they utterly knew themselves to be, despite what others said about them. So I'm going to focus for a bit on Christian gays, queers, or those who affirm them, which are people who come to this point of decision to be or to affirm LGBTQ positions with a solid background of Christianity and a well-established framework of understanding about the Christian perspective on this topic. So anyone who says that choosing to affirm LGBTQ identity or behavior in oneself or others is an easy way out has never done the crushing hard work of being required by the Lord to rethink their most fundamental doctrinal positions. For the closeted or the newly out gay or queer believer, It's about accepting something about themselves that is utterly certain to alienate them from friends and family and faith community, often of knowing that there won't be a church within a very long drive that will truly accept them as they are, of knowing that the pool of possible life partners suddenly shrinks by a factor of 10 or more, of being forever marked by mainline Christians as, quote, damaged goods, of knowing that most interactions with non-affirming Christians will be attempts to convict or judge or change or even threaten them. These are just absolute givens in today's America and in the vast majority of churches. For the believer, finally coming to terms with their own queer identity or even just considering taking a publicly affirming position like me, it's finding that they must repent of things that they said and did for decades of mourning the deep and abiding harm that they often unwittingly caused to the least of these, quote-unquote, of knowing that their family and friends may well reject them or hold them at arm's length because of these new conclusions, of being abruptly shunned by nearly every family in their church, of being disinvited as, quote, disruptive from an entire faith community because they don't toe a doctrinal line any longer. 
uh, sometimes of giving up that honor of leading their friends to the throne room and worshiper and preaching each week, knowing that they'll never again be welcome at that altar because they're unwilling to be silent about what God has required of them personally, of having their closest friends and deepest confidants convinced that they are at risk of hellfire because they choose to actively love sinners that those friends are unwilling to even have sitting in the same pew with them. So that hardly sounds like an easy way out, does it? Now, I'd say that it's far, far easier to simply sit self-righteously and smugly and holding a basket of dusty religious beliefs and doctrines and conclusions that were handed to them, and they were told, this is what we believe, don't you dare change your mind, rather than that painful and searingly hard work of carefully examining each and every one of those things. It's a lot easier to proof text one's chosen doctrine with a simple, quote, plain meaning reading of verses in isolation, rather than wrestle with the Holy Spirit over what those verses mean in the context of every chapter, every book, and even the entirety of Scripture. It's easier to separate oneself from entire groups of people, rather than wrestling with their very different faith. It's easier to only talk this over with like-minded anti-LGBTQ Christians, rather than spend some time listening to gay or queer people pour out their story of lifelong pain and shame over who they were, how they were treated by people who claimed to represent the God of love. It's a lot easier to smugly tell them they're going to hell if they don't change, rather than to simply sit quietly and hear them out without protesting that they're wrong or somehow damaged. Okay, so with all that said, I don't mean to say that I think that all the current pro-LGBTQ cultural changes are completely correct and wise. I do see a lot of harm in how things are currently playing out. I think there's a bad and excessive fascination with the topic today, and many young individuals are definitely making poor choices. There's going to be a lot that needs correcting, and plenty of people will suffer. It's a massive overshoot of what I think will be the correct center, and that bill is surely going to come due. At some point, the mistakes will become clear, even if many choose to ignore them in the name of equality and anti-oppression. But with that said, let's be absolutely clear about what I think. First, I do not think that it's all a mistake. Far from it. I'm now convinced that despite no small amount of faddish bandwagon jumping by impressionable people, a large number of the LGBTQ community are really, truly non-cis, non-hetero, non-binary, and that this is the right thing for the world to accept. In particular, I'm completely convinced that psychologists and gender specialists are correct that being gay or experiencing gender dysphoria is not a choice for most people. No amount of conversion therapy will work because there are truly immutable aspects to some people's brain and body. And I should say, no matter how they got that way, they're immutable. Secondly, I conclude that it is not my place to decide which people are faddish and which people are real. I repeat, it's not my place, period, full stop. It's not my place to force society to protect some people by forcing a very specific value system on unbelieving citizens. By Jesus' example, we don't win by force. Remember Jesus said, Peter, put away your sword. But by appeal and demonstrating a better way, even if that way means surrender and dying, But this forces me to ask a totally, absolutely, supremely critical question. For those who do choose poorly, and for the world that foolishly pushes too far past the correct balance, 
Where will the church be when some of them realize that they went too far? Where will the church be? Are we going to be standing self-righteously off in some corner, shrilly screaming, we told you so, see, we were right, you're all going to hell. Or are we going to be down there on the street living among those who clearly need Jesus and his love, having befriended those sinners and outcasts just like Jesus did, so that when some of them discover their mistakes, the Lord's church is where they choose to turn for healing and recovery and acceptance? Will there be faithful Christian gays and queers who are fully accepted and supported by the church, fully in love with Jesus, and also fully, deeply, completely understanding the pain, ready to minister to those who abused themselves and went with a fad, went with the crowd, instead of being really true to themselves and the image of God in them? Look, the church needs that LGBTQ component because they can minister in ways that we cis-hetero folks just cannot So the question is, can we love them all no matter where on the spectrum that they exist? For me, a lot of the church treatment of LGBTQ issues demonstrates an infection by the spirit of fear. So will we let love cast out fear? And really that right there is the core of my heart in this whole matter. The church needs to be that safe space when these prodigals come home. And it needs to be the safe place for those who are different but are still Christians, loved by their Father, welcomed to his table without any reservation, without any fear. And I personally am determined to be one of those who's known to be safe. At some level, this matter speaks to me of the parable of the wheat and the tares, or another word for that is weeds. And in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and left. And when the wheat sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also became evident. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. While you're gathering up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And then at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the weeds and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Truly this season sees a lot of tares, a lot of weeds in many areas of culture but there's also some real wheat beginning to mature. Things that need to happen are happening, and trying to rip out all the error will only uproot the non-error that is needed and valuable. Instead, let it grow, and at some point the weeds will be easy to separate out, but not yet. Jesus' parable was shocking to those who listened to it in person, and it's still shocking today, mainly for its compassion and patience, and mainly to those who want to attack sin with every weapon at their disposal. But that wasn't how Jesus lived, and it's not how I think I should be living either. And so I'm finding a contentedness and a rest in taking that hard way out, which requires not just the challenging work of standing up for an extremely unpopular position, but it also requires that difficult but necessary long view and patience and peace, waiting for the harvest to mature. All right, so I think that's enough for today. On the next episode, we'll be talking about homosexual identity versus homosexual behavior, some thoughts about transgender identity. We'll also be talking about cultural expectations and the idea that the culture that we're formed in gives us a certain way of thinking that 
affects how we understand the Bible and its meaning that may not help us sometimes. And then also we'll be talking about the important issue of pronouns. If you're interested in keeping up with these episodes, consider subscribing to the podcast. You'll get notifications when new episodes are released. And also consider signing up on the email list on the on the Crucible of Thought blog. Uh, we don't send any spam, but we do let you know when a new uh, blog post has been released. So thanks for coming along on this journey with me, and we'll talk again soon. <music>